His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. We did get a start on Hebrews 11 last week. I know it seemed like we were about 350 years in chapter 10. It took quite a while to get through. But having... uh, concluded chapter 10. We're ready now for 11 and 12, the great chapters on faith, the Hall of Fame from Old Testament standpoint and the heroes there. And of course, the greatest hero of all is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and fixing our eyes upon Him, as we just sang, turning our eyes upon Jesus. We get to run with endurance the race that's set before us. So uh, chapter 11 and 12, and then uh, back to our priesthood for the conclusion in chapter 13. So stay tuned for these things. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His faithfulness in the blessing of our time of study today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before You this morning once again, just so thankful that by Your grace we can be here today. Not that any of us have earned or deserved such a privilege, such a blessing. But we are in Your Son, Father, and He is the heir of all things, Your beloved Son in whom You are well pleased. And I thank You for the standing that we have in Your Son, that we enter with confidence within the veil, that we stand before Your glory. And uh, we have the privilege to do so today, presenting ourselves before You as workmen, not spectators, workmen, needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So bless our study, rightly divide it, feed us with Your truth, We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, now just to reintroduce the chapter, make sure we don't lose our bearings. The chapter 10 concluded with the need for endurance. It concluded with the confidence that we have. It says in 1035, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, and is provided for you. Don't throw it away. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And then the description of faith. It says in verse 37, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. If you think it's been too long because it's been 2,000 years since Hebrews was written, well, it's longer than that because Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament. And it's still just a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is from Habakkuk. It's quoted in Romans. It's quoted here in Hebrews. I think we're well familiar with it that we're expected to walk by faith. And we can be a local church that either walks by faith or shrinks back to destruction. And that's the warning. Not losing salvation, but shrinking back to temporal life discipline by the hand of the Lord called destruction. We want no part of that. And the author of Hebrews was very confident that his readers were of the first group, not the second group. He says, but we including himself and his writing team and his readers, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And I have a like confidence related to Austin Bible Church. We are of those who walk by faith. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction. And so this is what introduces chapters 11 and 12, the idea of endurance and faith. Chapter 11 begins with faith. Chapter 12 begins with running with endurance, the race that's set before you. So those twin themes of endurance and faith serve as a launching point for chapter 11 and chapter 12. And then chapter 11, then we get started with a definition of faith. This is what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is literally the substance It is the reality of the hoped-for things. And the hoped-for things, we're still, as creatures of time, bound by time, we're still waiting for those hoped-for things to uh, to be realized in uh, the will of God on this earth. But by faith, we can apprehend them even now. We have the objective reality now for what is coming when it gets here. And this is our blessing to walk by faith, giving us that reality, giving us that substance of the hoped-for things, also giving us the proof the conviction, the closing arguments of the unseen things. We are equipped to see the unseen because we have the eyes of our heart that have been enlightened and the blessings of God's provision there. 
For by it, the men of old gained approval. And this we need to uh, deal with here a little bit because I'm not exactly dazzled by the gained approval translation. It uh, speaks of martyreo. It speaks of a witness or a testimony. And I guess approval would be okay if it wasn't for the fact that uh, our culture and our generation seems to thrive on using the word approval in different ways, uh, usually with uh, in connection with some kind of personal self-esteem or some other kind of uh, worldly thing. And I want to kind of dump all that and just keep it with the biblical uh, aspect of a witness or a testimony. And the idea of uh, gaining a witness, Abel has a witness to this very day based upon his testimony of faith back in the very first uh, uh, worship service ever in the sacrifice that he, uh, that he brought. And so we're going to deal with these things. But by it, the men of old gained approval. And so let's, uh, let's deal with this here a little bit in uh, verse 2. If I have my right slide going. There it is, Hebrews 11.2. All right, what do we mean by gained approval? We mean that they obtained a witness, that they obtained a testimony. And this is a testimony that includes all kinds of uh, objects. And we're going to see this here, the audience for this testimony. First of all, faith achievements are witnessed by God. Faith achievements are witnessed by God. And when you're talking about martyrio, you're talking about a witness, not necessarily uh, you know, dying for your faith, not necessarily a torture or a physical death. That is where the noun martyr comes from. It does come from this verb, the idea that you're going to maintain your witness in the face of death, that you don't compromise your witness even though you're put to death for your faith. Ultimately, a martyr is not someone who dies for his God like some jihadi serving Allah. A martyr is someone that testifies to the truth of the Word of God at any price that, that the Lord asks of him. And that may include physical death. That's what a martyr is. That's what a witness or a testimony is. And so we're, we're talking about the witness that we have when we're living by faith. What does it communicate when you walk by faith? Well, it communicates that the object of your faith has value. It communicates the high regard that you hold the Word of God to, the high regard that you hold the Lord to. And so that you, you live by that standard no matter what. And we're going to see example after example after example from uh, Abel to Enoch to Noah. Just you know, scan down the page and you spot those names. We're going to find believers walking by faith. Not limited to the church age. In fact, it doesn't require the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't require the church age blessings that we take for granted every day. But it requires a living human spirit by a redeemed person who wants to live the Word of God that he's learning. And so he lives by faith. And in living by faith, he's pleasing to the Lord, and there are witnesses to this effect. In some respects, I think this, I don't know where, maybe um, uh, someone can tell me after class, but where, where did that expression of, can I get a witness, where does that come from? All right, and, and it kind of becomes idiomatic or becomes uh, colloquial in some respects. But on a biblical basis, this chapter is full of it. It's full of believers who got a witness, and they have a witness forever. And we're going to start to see who all these witnesses are, starting with God. All right, so in verse 4 and 5 we see, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Is that because the flock is intrinsically better than the vegetables? Or because it was a faith response to the doctrine that had been laid out there? The fact is that Adam and Eve were instructed in blood sacrifice. They were clothed with animal skins. And they conveyed that to the next generation. They taught Abel the, uh, the nature of the blood sacrifice. And he was responding to the teaching. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Abel could not have by faith brought the animal sacrifice had it not been based on doctrinal teaching. And so by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. He brought a sacrifice, Cain brought a sacrifice, but his was not by faith. Abel's was. And the testimony then, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. This is the martyreo witnessing that he obtained. Now, he didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. He didn't become righteous uh, because he worked for it. But the testimony was the product of his life. And God bore witness to what he did. Likewise, Enoch. And by the way, that, te- that testimony continues. 
through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Your testimony can last beyond your physical life on this earth. That's why we have the memorial wall we have in the hallway. We have the testimony of our brothers and sisters and the ministry they had here at Austin Bible Church. The, the, the fruit that they bore and the, the benefit they supplied to all of us in, uh, in the part of their, their ministry here at Austin Bible Church. The fruit continues. The testimony continues. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. So God had testified, and then the rapture that he experienced was the icing on the cake, so to speak, in that because before he was taken up, that testimony was provided. And so there's a testimony. And of all the, uh, the examples that we have, and there's people that can, we're going to see other examples because the angels and other people, and there's other witnesses to our walk of faith. But just starting with God, that's the, that's the only one that counts in my book. I want to hear those words. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I want to hear that from the Lord, as opposed to uh, a human being who might have you know, a, an imperfect perception or, or uh, ulterior motives for uh, his flattery or whatever else. I, wanna, I want the Lord to say, well done. That's the testimony I'm looking for. Even back in chapter 4, you might remember when we talked about this, in chapter 4 and verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God is the ultimate witness because he sees everything and he sees our walk by faith. And uh, so that, that little discouragement that we get every now and then when Satan whispers to us that, you know, that nobody knows, nobody cares, nobody sees. Well, that's not true. God knows, he cares, he sees. He's witnessing our walk by faith. He's also witnessing if we shrink back to destruction. He's a witness on our walk. There's nothing that's hidden from him. See, marvelous song that uh, uh, I cannot hide from God. And that's true, no matter where we go. We can go to the ends of the earth and think we're getting away with... No, wherever we go, He's watching us. And that's that's a blessed, blessed truth. So faith achievements are witnessed by God. Faith achievements are witnessed by the Scriptures. And thankfully, we have the Scriptures to testify to these Old Testament saints, things that we wouldn't know otherwise. Uh, But faith achievements are witnessed by the Scriptures, and so they can still speak even to this day as they're inspired in the the Word of God. I laugh when I read Job. Job sometimes, uh, there's a place where Job laments, and he says, Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed with an iron stylus. And he's just lamenting the fact that his his case is going to, he's going to have his words, and then people are going to forget him. And Job has no idea that they're going to be inspired in the Word of God, put in the Hebrew canon, and they're going to endure forever. And it's just, to me, it's a marvelous irony that Job is lamenting what God is actually providing through him to teach us. Job's faith achievements are witnessed by the Scriptures. In Hebrews 7, we saw this in verse 8 and verse 17. Talking about Melchizedek and, and the tithe, In this case, mortal men receive them, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. Well, where is it witnessed? It's witnessed right here. It's witnessed in the scriptures, that it's recorded in the scriptures for our, for uh, our benefit, for us to be edified by, to learn from, and to share in the faith testimony that the scriptures are providing. Likewise, in verse 17, it is attested of him. It is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Where does that witness come from? It comes from the Scriptures. It comes from Psalm 110. And so we have the witness of the Scriptures and the benefits there. It's curious to me, the witness of the Scriptures. And, uh, you know, the Old Testament saints that were inspired there, that were put in the Scriptures, they're spoken of in the New Testament. And I'm curious, I've got a, I've got a, a question in the back of my mind, Will there be a third testament? Will there be additional canon provided in the millennial kingdom? Will there be a testimony to church age events recorded in the millennium and provided for the saints in the millennium and beyond? In the thousand generations of the new heavens and new earth. Will there be additional canon provided? We don't know. But it's, uh, it is uh, something I chew on every now and then. The witness of the scriptures 
And so it is attested of him. And if we didn't have Psalm 110, if we didn't have this witness of the scriptures, we wouldn't know about the Melchizedek priesthood that was uh, promised to, uh, to Jesus. Likewise, throughout chapter 11, the witness of the scriptures again and again and again pertaining to these Old Testament saints. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 39. We're going to see these as we work our way through chapter 11. And I'm guessing, I don't know, we've been averaging 10 classes per chapter. Uh, We were a a little bit longer on chapter 10. I'm not sure how we'll handle chapter 11 and 12. But we're going to work our way through this this, uh, walk through the Bible. And we're going to see witness after witness after witness. And so there's the witness in verse 2 that's spoken there of the men of old. There's the witness in verse 4 of Abel. And that witness continues through the Scriptures. Verse 5, the witness of Enoch. Verse 39, kind of the summary statement for the whole chapter here. All of these having gained approval, all of these having obtained a witness. All of these having obtained a witness through their faith did not receive what was promised. Everybody in this chapter is dead. They're all gone. And the millennial kingdom is not here yet. And so the, uh, the pattern that's there should be an encouragement for us who are living on this earth. The kingdom's not here yet, but we have the substance of it already. We have the substance of it in faith. We have the proof of it in faith, of the hope for things, the conviction of things not seen. And apart from us, you'll notice, verse 40, God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. There is a way, when we, when we understand how the plan of God comes together, we're going to start that here in a few minutes, when we see how the plan of God unfolds in its successive stages, the angelic stage was necessary. The Gentile stage was necessary. Israel's stage was necessary. And it's not finished. It will resume when, when we're gone. The church's stage was necessary for a lot of things, including a perfection to Israel's stage. A perfection, and, and the Gentiles as well. We've got Gentiles and Jews in this chapter. From the stewardship of the Gentiles to the stewardship of the Jews. But it's the body of Christ that brings a a pleroma that brings a perfection, a completion, see? So much of what we're doing in this chapter, actually, we're going we're gonna to kind of cross-pollinate. We're going to borrow from what we're doing in Colossians right now with uh, the, uh, the perfect understanding of the will of God and what are the perfections in the, in the fillings that, that we get as church-age believers. All right, so we have faith achievements Witnessed by God, faith achievements, witnessed by the scriptures, faith achievements, witnessed by men. It's not inappropriate for fellow men to testify to faith. In fact, it's a glory to testify to faith. And it's not a false boasting and it's not a human boasting. Scripture does tell us to boast. It just says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Faith achievements as witnessed by men. And this is appropriate and uh, if we don't have enough of it going on around here, maybe a class like this will start to spark some more. Maybe we can, we can have uh, uh, better witnesses to the walk of faith. Okay, Why, How do they pick the first deacons in Acts chapter 6? Well, those seven men obtained a witness. Those seven men had their faith achievements testified to. And this is a legitimate practice here in the body of Christ. And we understand the context on this. There were widows and some were being neglected. There was a bit of tension. Some of it was ethnic. Some of it was related to the Hellenistic Jews, the native Hebrews. In any event, there was a problem. And that that problem was brought to the attention of leadership. That's not gossip. That's right. You have an issue, leadership has to address it. And when the twelve, when it's brought to the twelve's attention, I love how they respond. They don't brush it off. They don't dismiss it. They don't yell at them and say, you bunch of rebels, quit complaining. They acknowledge that it is a valid complaint that's being brought forward. They acknowledge that this issue must be resolved. And then they affirm that they're not the ones that are designed to resolve it. That they can't get involved in those kind of things because it would neglect their primary mission. And so they say, uh, the 12 summoned the 
congregation of the disciples and said it is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. You know, they could have taken on this function, but at what cost? Would have, they would have been neglecting their apostolic ministries and their, their, their uh, teaching duties. So therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good witness, of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. <laughs> well, that's hilarious. Just yesterday I was denying having a reputation, and there it is. There's a verse. See, we all have a reputation whether we want one or not. We, we should strive to make sure we have a positive reputation based on faithfulness to the Word of God. And there's the verse that uh, demonstrates that. All right. Seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we have put in charge of the task. And so they put forward the list of names. Now, there's more that we wish we could read into this. There's more that detail that's not recorded for us in the Scriptures. But we can uh, accept what the record is, is that these were excellent uh, candidates that the people put forward. And uh, the text doesn't tell us, you know, if there were other names beyond these that the apostles did not validate. The text just doesn't say. We can assume, of course, if they put a knucklehead forward, the apostles would have said, eh, no, we're not good with that guy. But they they put their hands on these seven men. And that is huge. Because there's a tendency on the part of the the democratic proponents, the folks that want to give power to the people and uh, put the authority in the hands of the membership, that says that when when the members make the, the nomination, then the apostles just had to do what they were told to do. That's not the pattern here. It's always top-down appointing. And so the apostles laid hands on them. The apostles appointed them to the task. They accepted the members' witness, but then they, the apostles laid hands on them and delegated the responsibility to these men. All right, I'm going to get off track with that. I love Acts chapter 6. Let's uh, go to chapter 10, because there's another testimony that's offered in chapter 10 pertaining to Cornelius, a centurion. We've got our own Cornelius around here, but this is a different Cornelius. Our Cornelius is not nearly old enough to have been around in the first century. But here's Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews. That's his witness. And it seems to be unanimous. The entire nation of the Jews divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them and gave them a lodging. So there's a witness. We, our walk of faith is witnessed by God. We have a witness in the Scriptures, witnessed by men. In chapter 16 is Timothy. In chapter 16 is Timothy, who's called a man, by the way, even though he's probably 10 years old. Um, but a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium, two neighboring towns. And this is his reputation, this young man. And so Paul wanted this man to go with him. So there's a witness. It's positive. There's a place for that. Chapter 22 and verse 2. And maybe that's not the one I was looking for. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. And he goes through his credentials, and there are people who can testify to that. There are people who can testify to that. And then finally, 1 Timothy 5.10. There's nothing wrong with a human witness. It's not gossip. It's appropriate. It's not flattery. It's not designed. There's no false motives for it. 1 Timothy. Talking about widows. A widow is to be put on the list. What list is that? Well, list for ministry, list for support. If she is not less than 60 years old, having been a one-man woman, woman, having a reputation for good works, there's a reputation and there's a witness. 
if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, if she has devoted herself to every good work. What a testimony, what a witness. And there's a widow that can be valuable to a flock in a ministry. You could put her on the list and then you, uh, she has support, she has um, uh, logistics, and she has freedom to minister and serve. And she can, she can do things that the pastor couldn't do in 100 years. She can get to places, she can minister to people, she has a perspective for things. And uh, what a joy. Younger widows, well, don't be so quick. Um, in fact, they may want to remarry. And, and if they're young enough, they should remarry. And that's the, the advice that's given here. Refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel the sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married. That is because they, they took on this responsibility too soon and now they're regretting that. And now they're regretting that. And so they're going to incur a condemnation there for setting aside their previous pledge. All right, witnessed by God, witnessed by the Scriptures, witnessed by our fellow believers in the body of Christ, those that have a perspective, a frame of reference, I, you know, whatever the unbeliever, refer, uh, whatever the reputation is that, that the unbeliever has, we can't control that, but they don't have the divine viewpoint perspective. We do. We can give a witness. Faith achievements are witnessed by angels. Faith achievements are witnessed by angels. This used to really bother me when I was growing up. In fact, I was 10 years old and you get in the shower and you think, are there angels watching me? Well, I'm naked in the shower? I mean, you seem kind of creepy. I think I've mostly gotten over it. Matthew 18. <laughs> see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. And children in particular that are spoken of here as having watchful angels. This is where we get ideas like guardian angels and other uh, theories like that. But uh, simply uh, these little ones, and there's children in the context here that um, you know they're bringing kids to Jesus, and some of the disciples you know say he doesn't have time for that, keep them out of here. But um, there ain't do not despise one of these little ones. I love taking time to to talk to the children and talk to these little ones, and they're my brothers in Christ, they're my sisters in Christ, and they have angels in heaven. And they're watching. We all have angels watching. But the children in particular are mentioned. Luke 15. Angels are watching. And they're rejoicing over a sinner who repents. And um, most people, I think, put this in an evangelism realm. I, th- I refer to it as more on the edification end of things. The sinner who repents, like the prodigal son. He was a son at the start of the chapter. He was a son while he was out there living with the pigs. He was a son when he came back and the older brother grumbled about it. He was a son the whole time. The sinner who repents, this is the the believer who should know better, that's uh, not walking like he should be, but then he wakes up and he comes to his senses and uh, there's rejoicing in heaven. Verse 7 says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now they're also under observation. And they're also bearing witness. But the real thrill, the real joy comes when someone, when they're witnessing something terrible that uh, will be eternally forgotten. And then when they witness the repentance from that, uh, there's the, the joy that's spoken of in that, in that repentance. Verse 10 as well. See, whether it's the lost sheep, the lost coin, or the lost son, it's the same story told all three times. Something to be said for sanctified redundancy. Okay. And the lost coin, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They're watching us. They're absolutely watching us. This is why we want to maintain our gender roles. This is why we don't want to confuse the men with the women. In 1 Corinthians 11.10, this is why men and women, they each can pray, they each should pray, but there are different procedures in place whereby when the women are praying or prophesying, 
They don't present even the appearance of usurping the male authority in the local church. And then they had to be very clear on that. Women were not to teach or exercise authority over a man, but there were women gifted as prophetesses. And so a woman who was gifted as a prophetess for her to function in her gift and to pursue her ministry, it was sanctioned, but in such a way so that the, with the head covering in place, different from the man, so that the uh, gender roles are not confused. And, and specifically, very in, in an enigmatic verse, it says, because the angels are watching. Let's see here. The um, in verse four, well, just verse three. I want you to understand: Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of woman. God is the head of Christ. Headship is the is the principle, and it's not a matter of superiority or inferiority. The Father and the Son are eternally co-equal, but the Father has headship over the Son. That doesn't diminish the Son's glory at all. The Son is delighted to be in subjection to the Father. And we have, of course, the the husband and the wife. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head because he's conveying something contrary to what he should be representing in his headship. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. Both the man and the woman can disgrace their head if they don't follow this principle. All right. For if the woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. It gets, we taught this in 1 Corinthians and spent quite a bit of time in it. But the point is, is that the genders are different. There are two of them, by the way, and they're not the same. All right. The things you think don't need to be preached, and yet the day and age in which we live in. Now, a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. Remember, Adam was created in God's image. He was commanded to image God and he was given Eve as his helper. The woman is the glory of man. Man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Where did the original woman come from? She was in Adam when Adam was created. She was extracted from Adam and formed as her own person. And that's the origin of woman. Men need women. Do women need men? Ooh. Bring that up at the next potluck. We'll talk about that at the dinner table. But the point remains that when it comes to origin, now I realize ever since then, the rest of us were birthed through a human woman, ever since then, but the original woman came from man. And that's the point Paul's making here. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake. God did not bring Adam to her because it was not good for her to be alone. He brought her to him because it was not good for him to be alone in his imaging God duties, not personal loneliness. All right. Man was not created for woman's sake, woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Because of the angels. All right. So if you get nothing else out of that, just angels are watching, okay? Same thing in Matthew, they're watching the children. Same thing in Luke, they're watching repentant sinners. Same thing here, they're watching the men and the women in the local church to see where the rebellion could creep in. Because guess what? Fallen angels are watching too. And if they see, hey, look, we got some rebellious women here, some weak women weighed down by various sins, they got material there to work with. The fallen angels are watching that too. And if they see uh, a tendency there, they can work in that. But if they see a humility there, um, the, the, not only do the fallen angels see that, the elect angels see that, it's a glorious thing. Okay? Why did Satan go after Eve first instead of Adam? He was checking things out. He saw where the open door was. Okay, finally Ephesians 3.10. This is the one that made me nervous in the shower. <laughs> Ephesians 3.10. The glorious mystery that was unrevealed in the Old Testament but is revealed to the apostles in the New Testament. He says in verse 8, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. We get to 
fathom the unfathomable, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, the dispensation of the mystery, the economy of the, of the mystery, the church age, to bring to light what is the oikonomia of the musterion, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. The creator of the ages. That's our next verse in Hebrews 11. By faith we understand that the ages were prepared. And we've got to talk about why the successive ages were prepared. Why innocence was not the church age. Why Adam and Eve were not the first pastor and pastor's wife. That the church age came after Israel, came after the Gentiles, came after the angels. The sequence is vital in the Father's unfolding plan. But the apostles brought forth the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known presently through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The angels are watching. And they've been watching. And they learned. We had angelic watchers in Daniel and they, they watched and they learned when Nebuchadnezzar was full of himself. And they watch and they learn in the, in the age of the Gentiles. They watch and they er, learn in all the other ages. But the church age, the age of grace, the age of mystery, God's manifold wisdom comes clear in ways that were not as clear to the angels in in the previous ages. We saw last last hour how the angels themselves were deficient in their understanding. Because if they would have understood God's wisdom, they wouldn't have crucified the King of glory. But because they were deficient in their understanding, they, they hung themselves on their own petard or whatever. They, they crucified the Christ which they wouldn't have done if they'd understood God's plan. So faith achievements, witnessed by God, faith achievements, witnessed by the Scriptures, faith achievements, witnessed by men, faith achievements, witnessed by angels. What about our non-faith achievements? What about the things we do in carnality? What about the things we do by the flesh instead of by faith? What about all the great deeds that the unbeliever performs? I mean, they've got to, don't they do things? Shouldn't they get a witness too? Actually, they are eternally forgotten. It's a remarkable principle, and we've seen this in Proverbs. This came up a while back in our Proverbs series on Wednesday mornings. Non-faith achievements. All of your wood, hay, and stubble production. You're going to see it one final time at the, great white, at the judgment seat of Christ as the fire hits it and exposes it for what it is. As it's consumed, it says we suffer loss. And then that's the last it will ever be remembered. It will never be remembered again. And it's interesting. What a, what a grace provision. We, uh, we approached it in Proverbs 10, but even before that in Psalm 9. We have some uh, indications of this. Psalm 9.5 says, You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name. Not just forever. Forever and ever. Isn't that great? The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. You know, we think about the lake of fire as eternal destruction. It never stops. It is a continuous, eternal destruction, ongoing, destroying destruction. And here is the memory, here is the name, here is the works, perpetually, continuously, eternally, in ruins. And you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. And it's interesting to me, the history books and what they write about and who they write about and all the other things. And I, I love history. I love biographies. I love uh, I think I've read four or five different uh, biographies on, on Julius Caesar. I've written different, read different things on, on uh, Alexander the Great. I mean, I, I, I like history. But it strikes me that much of what I read is useless because, or eternally useless. I get a little bit of use of it here and now. But eternally, what deeds of Julius Caesar are going to be remembered? He was a pagan and he's in hell today. He'll be in the lake of fire after the great white throne for all eternity the memory of them will perish. What was his name? You know, what's his name? And, and uh, think about <laughs> every assignment, every time the historians put the great after somebody's name, 
why do they select that person to be the great? They're not in Hebrews 11. Right? Are they going to be remembered forever? Or are they going to be forgotten forever? So Psalm 9 speaks to that. Proverbs 10. This is where we encountered it on Wednesday morning. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. <laughs> That's curious to me. In fact, there's something built in. I don't know if it's our human nature. I don't know if it's the imprint of God's image in humanity, but there's some component of humanity that wants to make a name for themselves or wants to have some kind of a legacy after they're gone. You know, maybe it's, it's some twisted, deep, psychological need for eternal life or something. I don't know what it is, but the idea, there are some people that are just craving a legacy. We've had presidents that just live so that their legacy follows and okay. And what is this? What is it? That, so you get your name on a museum or a library or a park or your name is on, uh, you know, different things until somebody comes along and gives it a different name. <laughs> you know? It's not Mount McKinley anymore. So much for his name lasting there. It's now Denali. Can you truly, you know, the, the, the lasting imprint of a name? Well, the memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. What memory will be left behind? What, what legacy are you giving to your children? The legacy, as I said, with the, the portraits on the wall over there in the hallway. There's a legacy that's left, a spiritual legacy that's left because of fruit that was born, because of the examples that were set, the ministry that took place. All right, so we have that here. Again, that's Hebrews 11.2. By faith they obtained a witness. The men of old, the men of old, the patriarchs, the, those old guys, Nowadays, old dead, dead white males are denigrated and those old white men, is all, the whole past is completely dismissed as being useless uh, by people that want to rewrite our history and uh, take us to a different place than where we've ever been before. The Bible says we should be learning from those examples. All right. By faith we understand. And before we get to the long list of by faith they... By faith he, by faith her, by faith they. we got a long list of by faith they, those guys. We start with by faith we. The very first uh, development is, and so some people actually include verse 3 when they outline the chapter, they put 1 through 3 as a prologue. Other people put 1 through 2 as a prologue and then they launch 3 and following. I think it's probably smarter to do 1 through 3 as the prologue of the chapter and then start with by faith Abel in the third person with verse 4. But there is um, uh, some significance here that we can't miss this morning in verse 3. By faith we understand that the ages, not the worlds, the ages, Ionos, the ages were prepared by the Word of God. They were molded, shaped, fashioned by the Word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So there is a dynamic between the unseen realm and the seen realm, between the spiritual dimension and the physical dimension. And it was the unseen God that not only created the universe, but also fashioned the progression of the ages in which history will unfold. Because hum angelity and humanity are temporal beings. Angelity and humanity are creatures of time. In other words, we're in our now and our now is now, okay? Not yesterday, not tomorrow, now. And we can't go back to yesterday. Somebody can show me a picture from 1992 and that, that was something, but we can't go back there, okay? We're now, and tomorrow will be a new now, and the next day will be, you know, it's day after day as long as it's called today. Every day we get to is today. That's true for humanity and that's true for angelity. Don't lose sight of that. Angels are spiritual beings because they're, they're immaterial, but they're temporal beings that they function in the now. 
And so when Gabriel gets kidnapped for 21 days, he's kidnapped for 21 days. That's his now, or it was back then, okay? And angels are progressing forward one day per day as you, you and I are progressing forward one day per day. All right. God is the only being atemporal, outside of space and time, interacting in, in, uh, in every now at every time. God and God alone is the I am. So we need to, we need to grasp these things. And human reasoning is going to fall short. But faith is going to instruct us. And faith will not only instruct us, but will give us the comprehensive understanding that we need. And so it is by faith that we understand the ages were fashioned, prepared, ordered, designed by the Word of God. And it's not the Logos from John 1, it's the Rhema. There's some important differences here. Because in John 1, we've got the Logos creating the physical universe. But in Hebrews 11, we have the Rhema fashioning the ages. The sword of the Spirit is not the Logos. The sword of the Spirit is the Rhema. And so we need very particular applications for each battle that we engage in. We've discussed the distinctions between Logos and Rhema before. So understanding the plan of God is a faith achievement, both in looking forward and in looking back. And uh, that should be, I got the wrong verses there, that should be verse 2. Looking back to the men of old, but also uh, looking forward is verse 1 for the things hoped for, and looking back is verse 2. Okay, I fixed it there, I just didn't fix it on my paper. Understanding the plan of God is a faith achievement. It is a faith work. It is a faith achievement. It is a thing that you do by faith in apprehending the plan of God. And we're supposed to apprehend the plan of God. You and I are church-age son, uh, ad- adopted sons. We're not slaves. A slave is not entitled to the master's plan. He's just entitled, he's just expected to obey the, the master's instructions. But we're sons. And we are on board with the Father's plan. He invites us into His plan. We become fellow workers with the Father to achieve His plan. So understanding the plan of God is a faith achievement both looking forward and in looking back. It's useful. Surveying the Old Testament Hall of Fame of Faith is useful. Reading the book of Job is useful. Looking at a man who had no scripture and seeing his acts of faith then humbles us with all the scripture (laughs) to say, wow, what am I doing? Why am I not walking by faith? I should be. I'm equipped. I have all things pertaining to life and godliness. I have things that Job just dreamed of, and I have them. And so this is a faith achievement. The Logos creative work brought physical material universe into existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing. This is the Logos in John 1. Join me in John 1. Because John 1 is not saying what Hebrews 11 is saying. The differences are significant, and both truths together are a harmonious thing of, of beauty. Because if all we have is Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's not all the information. There's more to it than that. There are questions in Genesis. <laughs> okay? And I keep teasing folks. I say, I'm sometimes going to start a multi-billion dollar international corporation is going to be called Questions in Genesis. And I don't know, I'm, I'm not hostile to that Answers in Genesis organization. I, I like what they're doing. But there is a limit to what they're doing because they self-limit themselves to not go beyond Genesis. And they've admitted this to me. They're very weak in their angelology because they can't find an angel in Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. I said, well, what do you do with the cherub and the sword in chapter 3? Well, we're not sure. Okay. Well, then there remain questions in Genesis that have to be answered in uh, Exodus through Revelation and the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so John is useful for us because here we find out that we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three members of Trinity, and it's actually the Son, it's the second member of Trinity who's doing the work. He's the carpenter. 
The father is the architect. The son is the craftsman, the master builder. You get the same thing in Proverbs 8, by the way. We're going to see it again in Colossians 1, that Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation, is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. Colossians gives us the invisible side that Genesis never did. So here's the Logos creative work. In the beginning was the Logos. So the Greek word for word here is Logos. It's the most common word for word in the Bible. Logos. And Logos was with God and Logos was God. And this is the fellowship that Jesus Christ has with His Father, the dynamic between the Father and the Son. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. Now the through preposition is important too because the Father was not ignorant of all this. He was involved. He ordered it. He designed it. It was His blueprints. But the Son made it happen. The Son executed the Father's plan. Say, you thought His carpentry work began when He learned from Joseph in in Nazareth? (laughs) Well, in His earthly walk. But Jesus Christ was a carpenter, was a builder long before that. He built the entire universe. So all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Not angels, humanity. The life of God the Son, the life of God the Son is applied to humanity, not to angelity. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, apprehend it, overpower it. So this is the Logos creative work. You want to see more on this? How about Proverbs 8? Proverbs 8. These are the kind of things that slow us down, that keep us from getting through a chapter in 10 lessons. But it's important. I think it's vital. Because Psalm 2 says, today I've begotten you, but it doesn't tell us what day that was. It just says today. Today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2. Proverbs 8 tells us what day that was. It was the first day. So in Proverbs 8, in the beginning of wisdom, in verse 22, Yahweh, this is God the Father, Kana, possessed, begot, it could also be purchased. It could also be stole, <laughs> built. Kana is such a ubiquitous term. It just means got. The Father got me. Okay? You get what I'm talking about? Getting. You can get stuff a lot of different ways. You can, you can buy, steal, build, birth. There's lots of ways you can adopt. You can, I mean, there's lots of ways you can get a child. The word is Get. For context, we can look to some of the neighboring expressions and say, oh, this is a childbirth uh, analogy. This is a childbirth metaphor. So let's just, train, instead of possess, let's just say begot. The Lord begat me at the beginning of His way, before His works of old. So this is not just in the beginning, this is the beginning. This is the alpha moment of time. The boundary between eternity past and the temporal present at the beginning of His way, before His works of old. From everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. That's a childbirth term. I was birthed. I was delivered. I was brought forth. When there were no depths. So this has to precede Genesis 1-3 when the Spirit of God was brooding over the surface of the deep. Jesus says here, there weren't any deeps yet. And I was birthed. I was birthed. Now clearly, stop stop me right now. This is not deity. This is not God the Son. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternal. They had no birth. They had no beginning. God the Son in His deity was not begotten, but His humanity was begotten. Humanity is not eternal. And this is where the light bulb comes on, because this is not a Bethlehem manger. This is not a Bethlehem manger as the birthing of the humanity of Jesus. This is the alpha moment. The boundary between eternity past and time. There will be an omega moment on the other end of time when we enter into eternity future. But this is the alpha moment. 
the very first moment. There's no before before this. There's just eternity past. And He was birthed. His humanity was birthed. God the Son entered into hypostatic union from this moment. I was brought forth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was birthed, brought forth. Same Hebrew vocabulary. It's childbearing. While He had not yet made the earth and the fields nor the first dust of the world, when He established the heavens, I was there. Just like in the beginning was the Logos, the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. I was there. But He was there as the God-man. Think about it. In hypostatic union, He was there. When He established the heavens, I was there. When He inscribed a circle on the face of the deep. When He made firm the skies above. When the springs of the deep became fixed. When He set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress His command. When He marked out the foundations of the earth. Now you're reading all those he's, 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 and you're saying, wait a minute, why is the Father the Creator? I thought Jesus was the Creator. Clever of you to observe that. Read one more verse. Read one more verse. I was beside Him as a master workman. The Father was designing it. The Son was building it. He was with God. He was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Nothing came into being apart from Him. All things that have come into being came to being through Him. Because the Father was designing it, the Son was doing it. I was beside Him as a master workman. I was daily His delight. Think about the joy a father has watching his son. The pride that he has watching his son. His obedient son. Rejoicing always before Him. Playing always before Him. The word there could be used of a child that's playing. It could be used of of an adult that's rejoicing. It could be used of uh, marital relations, which are uh, enjoyable. It could be used of a lot of rejoicing uh, activities, but this is clearly a father and a son. The father is delighted to watch the son, and the son is playing in the presence of his father. You ever watch your son build something with blocks? The father watched Jesus Christ create the universe. And he said, wow, that's my boy. That's my son. Rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth. He built it and then showed it to the father. And having my delight, not in the angels, in the sons of men. He was on board with the Father's plan because he understood that the Father's plan was going to unfold in stages. And although angels preceded humanity, he's not the God-angel, he's the God-man. And the God-man has his delight in the Father's unfolding plan for humanity. Having my delight in the sons of men. Now therefore, O sons, listen to me. Because the God-man has good news and you need to listen to it. Blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. For he who finds me finds life. If you don't come to the Son, you don't have life. This is a gospel call from Proverbs 8. And that's the God-man, creator of the universe, who's providing it for us. He who finds me finds life and obtains favor from God the Father. This is the grace of God the Father through the Son. But he who sins against me, what happens when you reject the gospel? Well, lake of fire for all eternity. We understand that. He who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. He puts them in a, they love death, and he puts them in a realm that's suitable to their lost estate. The lake of fire is eternal death, separation from God the Father. And their love of death, in a lot of ways, the the lake of fire is a grace provision from God the Father to those who love death. They will occupy the the spiritual death for all eternity. But but they've done it to themselves in rejecting the gospel, rejecting the Son. So, God the Son. 
And, and we get that. I love the fact we can go to John 1 and show that it's God the Son as the creative agent. We can go to uh, Colossians 1, God the Son as the creative agent, uh, visible and invisible. But Proverbs 8 just adds this final detail related to the begetting of his humanity, related to the fact that before he does his creative work, he himself has been birthed by the Father. His humanity has been birthed by the Father. So Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. It's the God-man in hypostatic union who is the creator of all things. And so when God the Son in hypostatic union forms Adam out of the dust, when Adam is made in the image of God, does that start to have a little more of a a connection, a little bit more of of an impact? made in the image of God because he's fashioned by the God-man already in hypostatic union. Things to chew on. Now, we also have the rhema. And this is not a creative work, it's a preparative work. We have the logos in his creative work. Now we've got the rhema in his preparative work. Brought the successive ages into their progressive visibility brought the successive ages into their progressive visibility. This is Hebrews 11.3, which we read a little bit ago. It's also Hebrews 1 and verse 2. We started the book with this way back in the day. And it wasn't that long ago, was it? We're about, what, 110 lessons into this now? What are we? 104, if the bulletin's correct. The bulletin's always correct. This is 104 or thereabouts. Okay. Hebrews 1, 2. Start with verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in the last of these days, He has spoken to us in His Son. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And He came with a message from the Father. He has spoken to us in a son whom he appointed heir of all things. Isn't that great? You and I get to be fellow heirs with the heir of all things. It's not like, you know, the older brother gets double portion and we get lesser amounts. We're in him, which is a good thing because he gets everything. He's the heir of all things. We're fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say, through whom also he prepared, he fashioned, he made the Ionos, the ages. This is not the cosmos. This is not the heavens and the earth. These are the ages. The ages. And so there is a progression of them. In the Father's design, the Son put it into effect because it's through whom. The Father ordered it, designed it. The Son made it happen. Through whom also He made the ages. And so the unfolding plan of God. Can you think your way through the unfolding plan of God? We've got a series on the website. We taught the plan of God. There's 19 MP3 sitting there. We've got a booklet out in the hallway on the plan of God. Can you think your way through? Why did he start with the angels? Why did they have this earth before we had this earth? What happened when Satan fell? What happened when Adam was then created? What's been the, the, the course of God's plan since then through the Gentiles, through Israel? Why is that on hold now? What's going on with the church? How can we have a people that is neither Jew nor Gentile? What, what about that eternal promise to the, Gen- to the Jews? It's coming. And do we know what's coming after the rapture? Do we know what's coming after the tribulation? Do we know what's coming after the millennium? Do we know what's coming after the millennium but before eternity future? Say, wait a minute. My Schofield Bible says after the millennium is eternity future. We're not quite Schofieldian, all right? We're, we're looking at stuff. Do we understand the progressive unfolding plan of God? We're expected to. So we have the Rhema's preparative work. And each of these things, and it came not from, not ex nihilo either, by the way. What does it say in Hebrews 11? It didn't come out of nothing. It came from the unseen things. By faith we understand that the ages were prepared by the Word of God, the rhema, so that what is seen was not made out of the things which are visible. 
There is a dynamic at work between the invisible realm and the visible realm. We are the resolution to the angelic conflict. Had Satan not fallen, would we have been here? One of those what if kind of things. Yes, we would have been here because he had his delight in the sons of men. But it would have been different, I'll tell you that. The unfolding ages, the necessity for the Gentiles, the necessity for Israel, the necessity for the bride of Christ, the necessity for the way we see the plan unfold would have been completely different had there not been any angels or had there not been an angelic fall. What is here seen coming out of there. All right. We're going to move on to Abel next week because that's the structure and format of this series. This is uh, the book of Hebrews at roughly 10 lessons per chapter. I would love to come back and teach this book again and spend, spend a year in some of these verses because there is so much to un- unfold, unpack, understand related to the plan of God. But we are the adult sons that are equipped to understand the plan of God and to live it out. And it's more than just simply the red dot on the map that says you are here. It's good to know where you are. Like the thing at the mall, that you know, you know where you are, you are here. But beyond knowing where you are, why are you? What are you doing here? Where are we going next? What is the purpose of God in my generation? Am I running with endurance the race that's set before me? All of these things come into play as we know our place in the, in the plan of God. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. And I do thank you, Father. We have length and breadth and height and depth. We've got dimensions of truth. And your, your Holy Spirit equips us to comprehend all of these. We thank you for the plan of God as it unfolds and for our place in it. The church age is, is uh, incomparable. Father, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but here we have it and the blessings we have in Christ and the blessings we're being equipped now to exercise then when the, the fullness is unveiled in the new heavens and on the new earth. What a joy that's going to be, Father. Equip us to, uh, to function appropriately, to function in uh, full adult capacity as fellow workers. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.